If you have um, your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. Obadiah is a very short book. It only has 21 verses in it. The entire book is just 21 verses. So we'll look at the book of Obadiah today. Uh, spiritual people always use the table of contents. If you don't know where it is, be sure to look in the table of contents and we will look at Obadiah together. Now, as you're turning to the book of Obadiah, there are uh, three words that will form our study of the book of Obadiah. The first word is the word lowered, lowered. The second word is the word all, and the third word is the word restoration. So lowered, all, and restoration. If you have your Bible there in Obadiah, I'm going to read just the first phrase of Obadiah verse 1. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word on this Lord's day. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for this day, and we are grateful that you have preserved us and brought us through uh, this past week. Uh, We thank you for your smiling providence, and we thank you also for your frowning providence. We know that you work all things together for good, for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we love you and we trust that we are called according to your purpose in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our minds to your providence all around us. Help us to perceive what is taking place here in our church with all these details as from your good hand. As we turn our attention to the book of Obadiah, Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of Obadiah. We also ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and away from gain, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your holy word, and that you would satisfy us today with your loving kindness. Grant us deep assurance that you love us, and that you are with us. We need those things from you, Lord, so that we will persevere. Bless now the reading of Obadiah and the preaching of it. And that's our prayer, and we make it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Obadiah, there are no chapters in Obadiah, but just Obadiah, verse 1. Just the first four words of verse 1. This is God's word. The vision of Obadiah. Amen. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. And may he add his benefit to the preaching of it on this Lord's day. As you know... We have had an extraordinarily difficult year last year with COVID-19 and we were not in church for some time. When we began to gather again, we decided to go through each of the books of the Bible. 
And that first Sunday we came back, we looked at the book of Genesis. And we have progressed through each of the books of the Old Testament up until today. Today we look at Obadiah. Obadiah is a very short book, and I would venture to say it is an overlooked book. Not many popular Bible studies are written on the book of Obadiah. And my fear is that when uh, many of us get to heaven, we'll meet Obadiah. And he'll ask how his book was. And we won't even know that it was in the Bible. Well, hopefully today, this sermon and this time together, study, will mitigate that. So that when you meet Obadiah, you'll be able to say, I enjoyed your book. But today we'll look at Obadiah. It only has 21 verses. And we'll consider the contents of this prophecy this vision from Obadiah. Now, as we've been looking at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is difficult for many people for many reasons. There are those who would say it's out of date, uh, it's antiquated, it is separated from our time and our culture and our language, and therefore it's not really of any value or use for us as New Testament Christians. Well, as you know, that's not at all accurate. The Old Testament is 75% of your Bible. And in the New Testament, which is only about 25%, there are over 600 references in the New Testament of the Old Testament. So if you took the Old Testament out of the New Testament, you wouldn't even have a New Testament. So the Old Testament is valuable to you and to me. It's a treasure for you and for me and for our spiritual life, faith, and growth. When it comes to the Old Testament, though, there are three historical backgrounds that you need to remember. Each of the books of the Old Testament can be situated into one of those three historical categories. Very briefly, I want to give you those. First is Egypt. The Egyptian Empire served as a backdrop against which many of the Old Testament books were written. The second one is the Assyrian Empire. The, the Egyptian Empire went out of focus as a world power. The Assyrian Empire rose to power. And many of the books in the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic books, Isaiah and books like that, are in that category, that historical backdrop. And then the third category is called the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrian Empire failed to the Babylonian Empire around 600 B.C. or so. And the Babylonians form the backdrop against which many of these other prophetic books are formulated. And so today as we look at the book of Obadiah, we're going into that Babylonian crisis, that Babylonian backdrop in historical context. Now, as you know, there are 12 tribes in Israel, 10 of which broke away and became known as the Northern Ten Tribes. Those Northern Ten Tribes went into an Assyrian captivity around 722 B.C. So about 100 years later, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. Now, I know this is a lot of detail for you, but it will really make a lot of sense when we look at the book of Obadiah so try to keep up with me, okay? As the Babylonians 
conquered the Assyrians, they moved toward the southern two tribes. If you remember, there were 12 tribes. Ten of them went in the north into the Assyrian captivity. There were only two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin. And both of those are situated in what's called the south, which is uh, southern Israel around Jerusalem. The Babylonians came in to Jerusalem and started to deport the people of Jerusalem. There were three deportations. One was in 605, one was in 597, and one was in 586. In 586, they destroyed the temple. Now, the way that a conquering enemy would come into and deport the people is in that first deportation, they would take the wealthy people, they would take the workers, they would take those who are skilled, and they would take them away. Now, what happens then is that society becomes weaker. So that was in 605. They took the wealthy and the workers away. So then they're left with two-thirds of the population, roughly, that are more inclined to subjugation. In 597, they came with the second deportation and took off another third of the people. So they left from 597 to 586 the weakest in society. These would have been the orphans, the widows, and such. Now during that time, the Edomites, which descended from Esau. If you remember, Israel descended from Jacob. Jacob's brother was named Esau. The Edomites descended from uh, Esau. They looked on the southern tribes and saw that they were very vulnerable. They were very weak because the Babylonians had come in and deported the strongest among them. So the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, decided to attack the weaker people who were in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they did. They plundered Jerusalem. They pillaged Jerusalem and looted Jerusalem Because those who were left in Jerusalem were not able to defend themselves and fight back. Then God gave Obadiah a vision. And the vision of Obadiah was intended to give comfort to his people. You see, his people were being taken off into the Babylonian captivity. And if you remember, God told them through Jeremiah to go into captivity. It was God's will for them to go into captivity. But while they were going into Babylonian captivity, they were attacked by the Edomites. And so God raised up Obadiah to write a message to the remaining people, a message of comfort and hope. And here's the message of comfort and hope. I hear your cry. And I will vindicate your cause. What the Edomites have done to you, I will repay. Now that message alone comforted the people of God. Now let me bring it into today. We live lives which are often persecuted, mocked and ridiculed for believing the gospel of Jesus. You can look all around our nation today and you can see that. We are being marginalized. For believing the truth of the gospel. And when that takes on a great strength in its movement. We can look at the book of Obadiah too. And we can call out to God. 
and he will hear our cry and he will vindicate our cause. That's what we see in the vision of the book of Obadiah. So the first thing I want you to see is the word lowered. The word lowered. Look at verse number one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. Notice verse 1 says, thus says the Lord God. You see it there in your Bible, it's compound, Lord God. That's Adonai Yahweh. It's a compound name which describes the sovereign Lord. The one who saved them from the Egyptian crisis. The one who demonstrated his power and his sovereign rule over Pharaoh. Who brought his people out through the wilderness, into the promised land. This sovereign God who revealed Himself to them as their God by grace, through faith, in His promise. This sovereign God has heard their cry. They are being plundered. They are being disadvantaged. They are being taken advantage of. And He hears their cry. It is this God now that raises up Obadiah to give a message, a word of comfort to his people. Now how many of you need a word of comfort? How many of you need more strength? How many of you need encouragement? Perhaps you're in a situation or you've come out of a situation where you didn't know the future and you didn't know how it was going to turn out and you're weak and you were not strong. In moments like that, we need a word from the Lord and that is exactly what God gives the people through Obadiah. Thus says the Sovereign Lord. So make no mistake, this is the vision, verse number one, of Obadiah. But it is the Word of God. And that's the point. Obadiah's prophecy here was a prophecy God revealed. And it was about the fate of the Edomites who had taken advantage of them. And so it was a comforting message to them. But at the same time, this is not a message of revenge. This is not a message of A human desire for vengeance. An unholy, unsatiable desire for judgment. No, God is saying there is something wrong and I am going to make it right. Aren't you glad that you have a God like that? Who looks on the plight of humanity and says there's something wrong here and I'm going to make it right. Is that not what the coming of Jesus really was about? Is it not what the coming of Jesus will be about? Why did God send His Son to begin with? It was because we were being taken advantage of by sin and death. Death was hanging over our heads, threatening us and taunting us. And God heard our cry and sent His Son, Jesus, 
to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, and to be raised on the third day to defeat sin and death and thus take the sting away from our greatest adversary, which is death. You see, this is not motivated by some unholy desire, some human desire for vengeance, but this is divine judgment. It is pure and holy. It is right and just. God looks on those who are taking advantage of His people and He comes to their aid and He defends them. This is what we've read all through the Old Testament, particularly the Psalter, where David himself says in multiple Psalms, God is my refuge and my strength, an ever-present help in danger. Indeed, this was the message, the vision, the prophecy that he gave to the people through Obadiah. He says in verse number one, we have heard. You see, Obadiah had heard and discerned the divine significance of this news against Edom. And at the same time, he now receives a vision from the Lord. Oftentimes things happen in the world and we don't understand what happens in the world our vision is murky and we need God to clarify that for us we need God to give us fresh sight and fresh perspective on life now Obadiah is hearing about this conspiracy against Edom He's hearing that Edom's friends will turn against him. And in that moment when he begins to hear this conspiracy of of Edom falling to his friends, at that moment God gives him vision, gives him clarity and says, Oh no, I'm the one behind the downfall of Edom. God is the one who is orchestrating Edom's downfall. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down two questions. I'm going to ask the question, why? Why was God behind the downfall of the Edomites? But at the same time, I want to ask you the two questions. The number one question is, how do you treat people who cannot help you? How do you treat people who cannot help you? We have an uncanny way of looking to people who can benefit us or help us, and we want to help them and give to them, but how do you treat people who can't help you? How do you treat people that can't improve your life? They can't make your life any better than it is. How do you treat them? You see, the Edomites looked on the Judites in that way. There's nothing that they could do to help them, so they took advantage of them. How do you treat people? Here's the second question I want you to to write down and think about. How do you treat people that can't fight back? How do you treat people that can't fight back? You see, the Edomites were looking at a group of people that couldn't fight back. The Judites had been weakened because of the two previous deportations. The weakest among them were left in Jerusalem. And that's exactly who Edom targeted. 
But how do you treat people who can't fight back? They can't fight you. They can't win against you. You're too influential. Your reputation is too good. You're too strong. Whatever the case may be. How do you treat people who can't help you? And how do you treat people who can't fight back? God takes special attention and gives special attention. He, he gives special care to the weak and to the disadvantaged. When we run over people and mistreat people and take advantage of people, God comes to their aid. I want you to notice what happens in verses 2 through 4 here. They were full of pride. Look at the Edomites, verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, that was where Edom was, in your lofty dwelling, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They were full of pride. Friend, is your life full of pride? Can you see people's needs around you? Can you see the weak or the disadvantaged around you? Do you care to see that? Do you care to offer a hand? Or do you pillage, plunder, and loot them and take advantage of them? Pride has deceived the Edomites. And may I just suggest to you that pride has the same effect on you and me. Pride blinds us because pride is the perspective of one who is selfish and self-absorbed. But God says, I will lower you. In their arrogance, they had lost touch with reality. We begin to believe in our pride that we are more powerful than we really are. We begin to believe in our pride that we're more influential than we really are or we're more significant than we really are. In our pride and in our arrogance, we lose touch with who God is and who we really are in light of who He is. If you notice verses 5-7, through seven, they loot and pillage these poor people. Their ill-gotten prosperity had been they had plundered it. Notice verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. He's speaking directly to the Edomites and he's saying those people who claim to be your friends are the ones who will actually stab you in the back. You are plundering these weak people, taking advantage of these weak people. But the ones that you're allies with are the ones who will be your downfall. Your friends will attack you and blindside you. And this betrayal of the friends comes after you, Edom, have repeatedly stabbed Judah in the back. If you remember from the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau had a very, very tattered history. 
Jacob deceived Esau. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And now you're looking at their descendants. You're looking at the Edomites and the Judites. And when the Edomites had the opportunity, the upper hand, they took advantage of the weaker brother. If you notice in verses 8 and 9, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. You see, death is the sentence. Even the wise will be destroyed. Even the mighty among them will be destroyed. Now, this message is about Edom and the Edomites. But this message is for the people of God. Now, what do you think is going through their mind here? We have been taken advantage of. We have been pillaged and plundered and looted By the Edomites. And now God has heard our cry. And God has come to defend our cause. The message of Obadiah. Specifically the prophecy against Edom. Is a comfort for the people of God. You see the great day of the Lord. Is a comfort for the people of God. Because we know that when Jesus returns. The great day of the Lord. When Jesus returns to this earth. All wrongs will be made right. Things will be just when Christ returns. And as I told you last week, it is foolishness and folly for us to believe that somehow human elected officials through policies in a nation like America will somehow arrive at justice Listen to me, that is idolatry. The government is the left hand of God, ordained by God. But the right hand of God is His church. And His church has a message. And the message is not a policy. The message is the person. And the only way that justice will be done is through the person that the church proclaims. May we never put confidence in fallen humanity. But may we put confidence in the one human who never failed. And his name is Jesus. I want you to look with me. This is the second thing I want you to see. But look with me at verse 15. It says, For the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. That is to say that God's judgment against Edom is really against the backdrop of the day of the Lord. There were many days of the Lord, small microcosm days of the Lord, but all of them are relative to the grand day of the Lord. 
And as you and I both know that that day was actually split in two, the first coming of Jesus where He goes to the cross and He absorbs God's wrath and justice against my sin and your sin and He's laid in a tomb and He's raised on the third day. The judgment of God poured out on the flesh of Jesus and in the flesh of Jesus, Jesus absorbs all of God's wrath against Against you and me. Now, if you were here, I would say that was a great place to say amen. But since you're not here, you just say it where you are. But then there's the second day. As you know, the day of the Lord, the first coming and the second coming. When Jesus will return to this earth and He will gather all the nations of this earth who do not claim Him as Lord and He will assemble them in the great valley and by the word of His mouth, the breath of His mouth, judgment will be unfolded on all the nations who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. And that day is not fearful for you and me. That day is our Comfort in this life. Do you see? The third and final thing that I want you to think about with me this morning and see is the word restoration. The word restoration comes from verses 17 through 21. Judah would be defeated. You remember it was... Judah and Benjamin, those are the southern two tribes. They would be defeated. They would be exiled to Babylon. That was the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. The Lord is not changing his mind just because the Edomites are taking advantage of his people. So Judah will be exiled. They will be defeated by Babylon, not by the Edomites. But after that exile, Obadiah prophesies that there will be a new order. And this new order would be a glorious restoration. And this restoration would be a restoration of the people of God. And also of nature itself. Look at verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of the Lord shall possess their, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. No longer will Jerusalem be a degraded place. No longer will Jerusalem be a play toy. For the enemies of God. Brothers and sisters, even to this day, Jerusalem in the Middle East is a play toy for the enemies of the people of God. But the promise of verse 17 is that there will be a new Jerusalem. And that new Jerusalem is promised to us by John the author of Revelation. 
In Revelation 21 and 22 where he says a new Jerusalem came down from heaven and encompassed this earth. There will be a new Jerusalem one day and it will be holy and undefiled by sin. And it will be for the Lord. Look at verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of the Lord, for the Lord has spoken. Do you notice in verse 18 how the word Lord is all capital letters? That's his divine name, Yahweh. This is his way of emphasizing something. This is his signature. You remember when our nation was founded. And there was one man named John Hancock. And John Hancock said, give me the Declaration of Independence. And he signed it more largely than anybody else signed it. He wanted everyone to know that he signed it. And so now, even today, 250 years later, we say, when we need a signature, hey, give me your John Hancock. That signature was for emphasis. Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is, when you read the phrase, for the Lord has spoken... That is his John Hancock. He is saying as surely as I wrote this, by my own existence, it will happen. When God promises something, He promises based on His own nature and character. This is His signature and it's for His emphasis. Now look at his, what He's trying to emphasize. Verse 19, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. That's the south. And those of the Shapila shall possess the land of the Philistines. That's west. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. That's north. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. That's east. Do you notice how it's expanded? North, south, east, and west. This restoration of all things will expand beyond the borders of what is currently called Jerusalem. Notice verse 20. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, that's north. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zarephath, that's south. And they shall possess the cities of the Negev. You notice the last word of verse 20 and the first few words of verse 19 is the word Negev. God's exiled people will return to the land and the land will be restored and the land will be expanded. And friends, this is exactly what we see in the Great Commission. When you read Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, Jesus says all authority on heaven and in the earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus is taking up 
the very prophecy of an expanded, restored nature and creation and saying that the way that it will be expanded is through the expansion of the preaching of the gospel to the nations. So our responsibility now, our part to play in this grand drama known as God's story is for us to take the gospel of Jesus to the nations of the world. For us to disciple people here in our town. Disciple people here in our state and nation. And to expand it throughout all the nations of the earth. That is the prophecy of restoration given by Obadiah. Do you see? You and I play an intrinsic part in that. It's not as if God needs us. No, no, no. We're not saying that God needs us. We're saying that God has chosen to use us. You see, the church of Jesus and the message of Jesus, the word of Jesus, namely the gospel, is plan A. There is no plan B. You're it. I'm it. And for this grand restoration and expansion to take place to the north and the south and the east and the west, we must proclaim the message of Jesus. And by the way, and for what it's worth, there's only one. Notice verse 21. Saviors, it's really unfortunate there, the word saviors, because it really means deliverers. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Do you notice what verse 21 says? Deliverers. God's people will be transformed from fugitives into deliverers. Notice what verse 14 said. Verse 14 says, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. But now in verse 21, they're called saviors or deliverers. God has done something. He has performed something on behalf of his people to transform them from fugitive into deliverers. Now these people are no longer under the rule of some tyranny, of some foreign ruler or power, but they've been liberated. God did something to liberate His people and He transformed them from being fugitives on the run from their enemies to deliverers and conquerors. And brothers and sisters, the answer to that question is the Gospel. That's what He's done for us. To transform us from fugitives on the run from sin and death into conquerors. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Do you see? Do you see? You are no longer on the run as a fugitive from sin and death. But because of the power of the gospel, you've been transformed into a deliverer. And now you promote the message that delivered you. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the very end, 
When Christ returns, you see the promise of the last phrase of verse 21. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. Now how do we apply this? Let me suggest three ways. Number one, endure hardship. Endure hardship. Jesus suffered at the hands of his enemies. What makes you think that you will not suffer at the hands of your enemies? Sin and death. And, and by the way, just to expand that a little bit, you, you, you must stop thinking geopolitically. You must stop thinking about Germans or, or Chinamen or Asians or Russians. You, you must stop thinking in geopolitical terms and you must start thinking in biblical terms. And that means that your enemies are not people. Your enemies are sin and death. And let me tell you what sin does to you. Sin makes you guilty. It gives you a feeling of guilt. A sensation of shame. And that guilt and shame is powerful in your life. And sin creates a vacuum of fear whereby you believe that you're alone and you're often threatened and you feel a sense of threatened and so you pull back from people or you pull back from circumstances. This is what sin has done to you. If Jesus suffered at the hands of His enemies, how much more will you and I suffer at the hands of our enemies? Sin and death. Fear and worry and doubt and unbelief and covetousness and, and, and consuming and criticizing and complaining. All of these, all of these are the ways that we suffer from sin operating and working in our lives. So my application to you is to endure. Endure hardship. Persevere by believing the gospel. Jesus Himself suffered at the hands of His friends. And Jesus predicted that His followers would suffer too. But Jesus promised to keep you. He promised to provide for you and to preserve you, to hold you, to guide you, to lead you. He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are not alone. You are not vulnerable. You are not exposed. You are not threatened. There is nothing to fear. Because He is your God. And He is with you. Second application is that we need to consider how we treat people. We need to consider how we treat people. Now I know that there are many of you listening that are older than I am. You've lived longer. You have more experience than I. 
I can only work with the years of experience that God has given me. But the older I get, the more I'm beginning to realize that people are really all that matters in this life. How we connect with people. How we build and grow relationships with people. Yes, we preach the gospel to them. And yes, we seek to disciple them and train them and teach them what we know of the Lord and His ways. Of course, I'm not negating the Great Commission, mind you. But the older I get, the more that I see just being with people matters. Being around people having people around me. So as we look at the book of Obadiah and we think about the Edomites, I want you to think about yourself. Consider how you treat other people. Do you take advantage of people that can't help you? How do you treat people who can't fight back? That's really the test of your belief system. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. But the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. John, the beloved disciple, said, Don't tell me you love God if you don't love your neighbor, your brother, right there in front of you. The third application is hope in the final judgment. Hope in the final judgment. We are looking forward to judgment. That sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? We're looking forward to judgment? Brothers and sisters, we're not looking forward to the unfolding of God's wrath upon the nations. In fact, we want the opposite. We want the nations to come to faith in Christ. We want them to know the life-giving gospel of Jesus We don't take hope or comfort in them being judged. How depraved of a thought. But we look forward to judgment and we don't see judgment. Because Jesus in His first coming has already taken the judgment for us. And so now we look forward to the judgment not as judgment but as the consummation. Of what Jesus began when he was raised from the dead. That's our comfort in life. In this life and in the next. Hope in the final judgment. Find your comfort in the final judgment. May God bless the preaching of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day yet again. And thank you for the privilege of reading the book of Obadiah and thinking through his message. I pray that you would take and apply the truth that we've heard from this book. And I pray that you would develop our character. Develop our character by captivating our thoughts and hopes in reference to the final judgment. Transform us 
from fugitives to victors. Help us from our heart to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And help us to endure hardship and persecution. Preserve us. Thank you for Grace Baptist Church and the wonderful people that call it home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, this is Dr. Kevin Jackson. Thank you for listening to the Grace Worth Sharing podcast. It is because of faithful listeners like you that we bring this content each and every week. As a gift to you, I would like to give you a free copy of my book called The Prayer of Jesus, Experiencing the Grace of God Through Prayer. This book shows how the prayer of Jesus can help you as you pray. In addition, in the appendix section of the book, you will find every prayer from the Old and New Testaments listed. I've also included every prayer of the Apostle Paul for you to use as a guide as you pray. You will absolutely love this resource. This gift to you is a way for us to say thank you for listening each and every week. Just text the word GRACE to 662-253-1079 and get your free copy today. And please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast so we can get the content to as many people as possible. Again, thank you so much for being a part of what we do here at Grace Worth Sharing.